think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 60 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 61st episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. I am Etienne Rainville. That's, it was like pulling teeth, but you did get there. Yeah, here we are. Um, so it's been um, a, a, a cool two weeks since we recorded because uh, we're not very good at doing weekly recordings <laughs> uh, for a variety we, we of reasons. We have real jobs. Yeah, you know, life's busy. Life's busy. Anyway, uh, obviously there was um, one really big story last week that, that sort of gripped uh, the Canadian public's imagination uh, in a disturbing way, sort of an H.R. Geiger uh, kind of sense, and that I was don't the, even know what that means. H.R. Geiger was the artist who designed, uh, well, among many other things, uh, the Alien from Alien. Oh, yeah, that's an obscure. A lot reference. of his, a lot of his art is very, you know, phallic and engorged. Okay, yeah. I can. Anyway, uh, with that, that gets us to exactly where we want to be, which is Tony Clement's penis. Uh, the news story of the last two weeks. Um. Okay, so so that's a blunt way to put it. Um. Here's. Here's my take. Uh, at this point, I'm going to presume a lot of the people listening are already pretty familiar with the details of this, if only because it's been in every major uh, outlet yes. for the past week, and there's been no shortage of ink spilled. In fact, your, your Instagram, maybe? Like... Um, so here's, here's my take as sort of an inside-the-hill perspective. Um, when I first... Uh, saw accounts of, uh, I guess, Tony's behavior on Instagram. Some, some of the initial reporting wasn't quite as detailed as the later reporting. Essentially, the initial reporting was that he had liked people's photos on Instagram, right? Right. And, like, to be clear, like, engaged in some, like, thirsty midnight deep creeps. So that's sort of where it gets to be, like, there, there's a spectrum here. Yes. Um, and the spectrum is like so. Here's here's my mea, not my mea culpa, but my uh, my disclosure. Um, I followed Tony Clement on Instagram, and Tony Clement followed me back on Instagram. And to anyone who doesn't follow me on Instagram, which is everyone, uh, I post pictures of beer. That's pretty much it. Um, once I used to post pictures of like pasta and other assorted things, but now it's just beer. But now it's just beer. And Tony Clement would like all of my beer picks often before any of my friends did, often as soon as I posted them. So I knew this side of Tony's behavior, but yes. in a very uh, peripheral l- sense. Peripheral, yeah. very limited way. And I've heard from people for years. I don't I'm not on Instagram myself, but I've heard from people for years who say, Oh, Tony Clement follows me and like my pictures, and like it's kind of a, a thing that like he follows literally everyone. So anyway, that's that's relatively innocent, right? Is that heavy social media use, you know, whom among us, right? And I think, so I think that was the base. When this story started to break, that's where I think a lot of people, including myself, went like, oh, yeah, Tony follows me on Instagram and likes all of my photos too. Yes. But as details started to emerge as to more specific behavior, uh, namely direct messaging, women... Uh, on Instagram at various times of night. Um, I think it became much more obvious that the behavior was inappropriate. Uh, I can safely say that Tony Clement has never direct messaged me on Instagram regarding my beer uh, photos. Yes. 
So this is this is a, sort of a story that developed over a couple of days, and like details trickled out, more facts uh, came through. Um, credit to Toronto Star with Alex Boudelier and Alex Bollingall. The two, the two Alex B's of, um, the, the much confused two Alex B's of the Toronto Star. Who provided one of the most detailed accounts of, you know, the, the situation. So, so I think there's that whole angle and, you know, idols, um, becoming public. And then there's sort of the, what's really caught, I mean... Frankly, both sides of this caught media interest. But then there's the the NSI COP, which is National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, um, which is the Committee of Parliamentarians, both uh, senators and MPs, tasked with oversight, roughly, um, of our national security intelligence agencies, and the whole secret uh, or and the whole sexiness of the the top secret. Um, side of the story. Yeah, I, it's a sort I, I of James Bondy like honeypot kind of situation where it's like, ah, they're extorting uh, him to get our secrets, right? Um, okay, so but yeah, obviously that turned out to kind of like he's just he was a guy who who was too horny. So the facts of the case are roughly that, like roughly because we don't know it's all through sort of secondhand accounts, but that just before the summer, it seems Tony Clement's Instagram was compromised. On that Instagram, he had sexually explicit conversations with at least two women. Um, and the individual that compromised the Instagram account went on to uh, try and message these women um, to get additional details yes. about the alleged and, affairs. And to be clear, from a, a third anonymous or private account, yes. uh, not from Tony Clement's account. Um, yes. So no, I guess we're actually like hypothetically it was the person doing that had initially compromised the account or at least someone like I think that's a safe sort yeah, of assumption that's, that's or someone the, connected to it. But th- yeah, that is the presumption. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. The, I mean, otherwise they just got very lucky, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, because the, the initial reporting was talking about this individual um, reaching out to these women. And it was like, how did this person... Um, know that these women were implicated and when it became known that the Instagram account had been compromised that that was sort of a few of the puzzle pieces Mm -hmm. came into place Um, so I guess at some point Tony uh, regained control of his Instagram account message from the women told them to delete the conversations things along these lines yes um and then from there the sort of the third party I think there were a couple sort of sock puppet accounts um, tried offered them money for details, mm-hmm. asked for details, tried to solicit information, and this all essentially led up to the ask of to Tony Clement. He uh, purports that he reported this uh, to the OPP initially, mm-hmm. and then the ask of fifty thousand dollars or euros. fifty thousand euros. Yeah. Yes, um, that was eventually reported to PCO RCMP, and is how the story became public effectively. Yes. Though, yeah, it's very awkward in that it was an opposition politician having to go to PCO with this, which yeah. is, of course, controlled by the other party. Uh, I mean, not, the, you know, it's just, it's an awkwardness that yes. is unusual. And and to be clear, the reason he had to go to PCO, right? I mean, arguably he went too late, and that's certainly something that will be discussed and has been discussed, um, is it wasn't after the account was compromised the first time and it was reported to police, but it was after the $50,000 ask came in. Yes. Um, that he went to PCO and 
the connection going to the Privy Council office is in relation to his position on NSI COP. Yeah. Um, because you're supposed to inform them basically any change of status. Yeah. Um, Anything yeah. that would sort of affect your security clearance, which sure. being extorted by, like, you know, Belarusian uh, an mercenaries. Un- an unknown actor. Yes. I assume they're Belarusian um, mercenaries. For having a physical affair and a digital affair certainly constitutes that. Yeah. Not good. So I, I have two things to add to this. The first is I actually don't think it's a state actor. Um, that seems unlikely to me. I don't know, just looking at the kind of situation. It's very slapdash kind of like crime of opportunity, I think. What I think is crime of opportunity, I think it's likely that either his account was fished through a generic, uh, a, you know, a generic or a targeted phishing attack. Or he, you know, as happens to people, logged into sketchy Wi-Fi while traveling. MPs travel a lot. Tony Clement is no exception to that. In fact, he travels, like, a lot. Quite a bit. Yeah. I know this from following him on social media. <laughs> Undone. Um, that he, he travels a lot. And, you know, everyone has the friend who goes to Europe, logs into the hostel Wi-Fi, um, pulls up their Facebook account, their credentials go through an unsecured network, and they're scooped. Not good. Um, if you're an individual skimming this sort of credential, and then you find out that the person whose credentials you've skimmed are a parliamentarian, a prominent politician, yeah, uh, and someone having an affair over Instagram, then I think the, the crime of opportunity presents itself. Yes. But what I find to be the most damning, or, or sorry, the best piece of evidence towards my suspicions, not that... I, I would purport to be an expert in this. But it's just the, the $50,000 ask. $50,000 is... Euros. Or, shut up. <laughs> is quite a bit of money. Um, you know, it's not it's not an unattainable sum for someone making $170,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, that's not a sum of money available in one's checking account, especially if they are, uh, you know, good with money at all. Right. Um, so asking for a sum like that is like is more likely to trigger the I need to go to police right than asking initially for a two thousand dollar payoff yeah if you say two thousand dollars here two thousand dollars next month and you string them along they have now become implicated yes in essentially covering up they have now right implicated themselves much further yeah it's like a Nigerian but, scam but they've seen a picture of your penis. Yeah, yeah. But if you ask for a hundred thousand dollars off the bat, the odds of any reasonable person going along with it much further than just calling the cops immediately. Right. Is, yeah, it's, it's you sort of hook them in, right? It's it, one thing at a time. Yeah, you, you yeah. reel them in. You, That's you, pretty much how every like blackmail scheme ever has worked. You bait them yeah. slower. That is why I lean towards thinking that this is. A run-of-the-mill scammer I mean, who was that, trying to make a quick buck. Has, have people really like put forward the theory that this was a state actor? Like, uh, yes. I, haven't, I haven't seen a lot of that personally. No, but. I mean, in Tony's uh, eventual letter to his constituents posted on his Facebook or... <laughs> a man cannot get enough. <laughs> or website, um, it did refer to a foreign actor, um, which... Well, foreign actor. I no, mean, that usually I know, means I know. state. I it guess, it yeah. alludes to the state, and frankly, state makes it look better um, and is a more intriguing story. Well, it's like they got at you for your, your secrets rather than like yeah. you posted your hog and uh, you're now being. Uh, and <laughs> this little piggy went to market, you could say. Jesus. <laughs> um, so, so let's take that and bridge to the, the NSI cop angle here. 
Um, so there's a, a lot being made that Tony Clement is part of the National NSI COP, and as a member of that has access to you know documents not available to the average MP or frankly many ministers. Yeah, I was gonna say. Um, but I actually think that this angle, to a large extent, is overblown. And the reason I say that is just in comparison to cabinet ministers in similar situations. I'm firmly of the view that cabinet ministers um, who've had affairs, of which Ottawa has seen quite a few, um, are putting themselves in equally compromising situations, are opening to the same sort of extortion and blackmail Mm -hmm. um, with access to their own sensitive documents yeah. the the, the uh, sorry the documents of their department yep or cabinet documents so cabinet documents and the type of documents that NSI cop would have access to are very different um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that they're essentially equally sensitive they're just yeah. sensitive in different ways I think it's worth saying too that like if you were to you, there were there was all this stuff in the U.S. about you know Jared Kushner having trouble getting a security clearance, and that that's one thing. But like a cabinet minister here is someone who is you know elected official almost always and is appointed by the prime minister who is themselves elected. And I think it would be not good if you, for instance, had uh like the RCMP or whoever is saying this person we don't think this person can be a cabinet minister because I mean like. They may have serious concerns, and like that—that that is, you know, their prerogative. And I think it'd be their their duty to inform the prime minister at that point. But the prime minister, I think, at that point, still gets to say, "I still want this person to be a minister." I think like the RCMP and CSIS or whomever does not really get to have a veto on whom the no, prime minister can and cannot appoint. Not at all. Uh, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Whereas I think like NSI cop, like if you are not sort of meeting that line. I think there, there's much more of a case that, like, okay, we can probably just sub you in for someone else who is, like, equally valuable. Sure. You know, like and it's a, it's a different kind of, different slice of cake here. And, and if I'm not mistaken, in the case of NSI Cop, uh, at least initially, they were, had their finger in and were uh, at least hoping to pick and choose who some of the opposition parliamentarians on the committee were. Mm-hmm. Um but my point with cabinet ministers, and no, you, you raise a perfectly valid point that anytime it becomes a case of providing security clearances to elected officials, it becomes very awkward very quickly because yeah. the people making those decisions are fundamentally um, in like, non-politicized roles. Well, and so it becomes awkward if, you know, individual X applies and is rejected. Yeah. Um, but to use, let me use the example of Hunter Tutu here. Because I think it illustrates the point. Hunter Tutu was the Liberals' um, initial fisheries fisheries and oceans minister. Um, And he was uh, found or exposed, or I can't remember quite how it came out, basically to have been having a relationship with a mother-daughter combo independently, or a mother-daughter pair independently. And not good. So one of whom was a judge. Yes, the mother. I think. So I mean, well, the access to doesn't really excite the imagination. The access to cabinet documents and cabinet secrets is there with every single minute, uh, yeah. minister. Yeah. And the conversation that is often had in Ottawa is that affairs such as this, there, there are some cases that become more prominent than others based on 
uh, extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. But there have been quite a few uh, affairs of cabinet ministers that have gone unreported by the national media out of the view that it's not public, uh, publicly. Yeah, so it's not in, news, in the right? public yeah. interest. It's I think is typically lives. how it's phrased. Yeah, um, but that of course brings us back to how is NSI cop being treated differently than standard cabinet documents and access to cabinet documents yeah. in terms of having uh, relationships that open ministers or MPs to extortion. Yeah, and and I think fundamentally they should be treated more similarly than they have been in the past. Yeah, I I think there's a distinction, as I said, between cabinet and NSI cop. I think the the job of NSI cop is fundamentally fairly mechanical in the sense that I I think if you change the inputs there. It doesn't matter too, too much. Um, I, th- I think the, you know, their job is to review this intelligence stuff. I think, you know, not to say that there's no expertise or anything, but, like, I think you can find enough qualified people on every bench that you could sort of slot into this, where I think since their sole job is looking at these documents, a clearance level is more important than, say, in cabinet, where I think there's much more of a, like, you know, if you like for instance you look at northern ireland right northern ireland when it had a government uh it has not had one for well over a year now you had people there who were like quite heavily involved in in violence on on either side of the security divide there and if you were subjecting you know leading northern irish politicians to go through security clearance no one would pass like it would it would be a huge problem uh like the jerry adams of the world like and um and yeah it's just like you know that's ian paisley's it's it's not gonna happen so i think there you you sort of have to let the political calculus of what is actually like you know the decisions of political actors rather than the security services but here i think i'm okay with with them sort of playing an arbitration role and saying you know let's see just send someone from your bench that everyone can live with and that's good um, the one other point that you're, uh, you, you prompted me on there to remember is the difference between NSI COP and cabinet is that NSI COP is an oversight function. While these individuals have access to, uh, very sensitive documents, fundamentally their decision making, uh, ability is quite limited yeah that's kind of what i mean it's it's not a spot where you're going to have like an enormous influence that i think should like override the sort of principles of security here but with cabinet it's more sensitive in that if you have incriminating information on yes. a cabinet minister they're then sitting around that cabinet table and if you believe that cabinet functions on consensus um then you are potentially having say on very important decision yes. making that's true um it be it the fisheries uh, minister or the minister of foreign affairs that is true and like i said i think it would behoove you know anybody doing background checks or whatever or security clearances to inform the, the prime minister of any concerns but i think ultimately it'd be up to the prime minister in that case um and we've had so the other thing i'll note just as we close this conversation a historical note for anyone interested in this is we've had you know, not an unreasonable amount of cases along these lines with really serious national security considerations in Canadian history. We once had a parliamentary secretary uh, to foreign affairs who was engaged in what was essentially an affair with a foreign correspondent for a media wing of the Chinese government. Right. This was Bob Deckert. Deckert, Deckert, I think is how you say his name. I have no idea. Bob Deckert. 
Um, we've also had, I mean, under the Wynn government, uh, CSIS had raised concerns about cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I believe there it was a Chinese government connection as well. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, who knows? I'll, I mean, democracy's I'll, messy. A lot to consume there. No, yes. no obvious conclusions, but uh, yeah, something, something to think about. Yeah. So we came pretty far from Tony Clement's penis there. You just love bringing that up. <laughs> I mean, it it's not every day, you know, that you can you can talk about it. Um, so it's sort of a you know subject that I think has a certain level of intrinsic humor. Okay, let me let me bridge away from that to C eighty six. I just want to the Budget Implementation Act Part Two, BIA Part Two. Yes, I just want to make a little procedural note. We raised in the last and episode. all we do these days is sequels. No one ever makes any. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to raise it. Uh, on a procedural note, we noted last time that the speaker at the behest of the NDP was going to consider splitting votes on the bill. Yes, I believe it was Peter Julian's motion. Peter Julian or Nathan Collins? It was Peter Julian. I thought it was Nathan Collins. Wrong. Um, it wouldn't make more sense to be... The finance critic. Yes, it would. Um, but the speaker has now ruled, and the summary of the speaker's ruling is that having reviewed what uh, the NDP presented as the problematic clauses... The speaker determined that, so what what he was ruling around was essentially whether or not all the parts of the bill, or the parts of the bill as questioned by the NDP, were present in the budget. Right. So it's called the Budget Implementation so Act. everything has to be germane to the budget in the Budget Implementation Act. So if you if you if your budget's all about trampolines, you can't be, also, uh, we're putting in a section about screwdrivers. So for anyone who's never read a budget before... The budget often uses broad sweeping language. Extremely. So this opens up a lot of room for subjective interpretation yes. as to what was hinted at in the yeah. budget or and not. Because sometimes the budget isn't like very, very explicit and straightforward. Yeah, if you look at the last NDP election campaign, the federal election, for instance, like there are categories that they sort of came out with the fiscal costing and the, this sort of much derided press conference that uh, did not help their chances, to put it mildly. Uh, was, you know, help where it's needed most. And frankly, that is the kind of level of detail that you will often see even in a budget. It's typically a little more targeted than that, but pretty, pretty broad often. I, I can't think of a specific one from, from this year's budget, um, but they were similarly vague. Sure. So there was one part of um, 86 that the speaker determined not to have been now announced in the budget. And it was on, more or less on a technicality because he felt that it had been announced in the previous budget. Okay. In a previous one. Right. So it was a 2017 versus 2018 I mean, and based on the wording of the standing orders. Yeah, that seems fair to me, honestly. It was decision, not right? a budget. It was the budget. I mean, that, that to me doesn't sound like much of a technicality. Like the Budget Implementation Acts are to implement the budget that was passed, you know, that year. I think that's a perfectly reasonable call. Like I don't, I don't find that to be over overly fiddly or, or sort of neat. You know, yeah. I think that's that's totally within the spirit of how that's intended to work. But helicopter does not translate <laughs> to avion. <laughs> for uh, for people unaware of, of that who may have uh, started listening recently, uh, this is a, re- a reference, of course, to um, Mario. Or sorry, not Mario. Doing was actually still. Um, Mary Dawson's investigation into the Prime Minister's trip to the Aga Khan's island in the Caribbean, where uh, the Prime Minister's council claimed that 
because of a discrepancy in the English and French texts of the Conflict of Interest Act, where in the English it reads aircraft and in the French it reads avion, which is colloquially used for plane but not often for helicopter, that they had no obligation or that they were permitted to take a helicopter but not a fixed-wing aircraft to a private island uh, some distance from the airport to which they had flown. So good. Yes. Um, So that is what happened. Um, So 86 got two votes. Um, It was in pre-study by Senate. Or, sorry, not pre-study by Senate. That doesn't make any sense. Pre-study at FINA, which is the Finance Committee, um, were were doing their study of the bill so that they can move it through committee stage very quickly once it got into their hands. I believe it is now in their hands, but we're on a break week. I think they're hoping to dispose quickly of it um, when the House resumes next week. Yes. Um, So that's everything you wanted to know about BIA Part 2, which I imagine... Oh yeah, I mean that's that's what the that's what the people thirst for. That's what they want. Uh, so uh, last year, I believe, I think it was last year, we had uh, Jane Hilderman, the executive director of Samara, on to talk about uh, their annual report that they do about um, the state of democracy. Uh, today we're going to talk about a different Samara report, which is uh, based off MP exit interviews, uh, or I suppose is is it MP exit interviews in this case? Yes, I think it, is. it is. It is. So they're talking about uh, mostly, you know, what people thought MPs from all parties, and actually I have to I have to really give them a hand on this. The demographics and you know par- of both partisan of, of gender, etc., fit very very neatly into uh, the composition of the House as a whole. Uh, I thought it was very, very close. Uh, so that that's quite impressive. So I think it, it's broadly representative, though, with the obvious caveat that politicians are, are you know, it's herding cats. So they even if you get a representative sample, I think every representative sample is going to look kind of different. But still, I think there's a lot of interest in here. Uh, so we just want to talk about a couple points that, that we found particularly interesting. Attend if you want to take us away. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll just note that this report, there have been three pre or three reports total in this series. Uh, the first one was focused on MPs in Parliament. The second one was MPs in their constituency, and this being the third is MPs in their political party. Mm-hmm. And it's, as you said, exit interviews, so that's MPs who were essentially uh, either not re-elected or chose to leave exit politics. Yeah. Um, and so the, the key findings quickly summed up were a dismay about extreme party partisanship, uh, concerns about the hollowness of caucus delibera- deliberation, the inability to check party leaders, intense peer pressure among MPs to play as a team, yep. uh, diminishment of local parties, and then my favorite, the quote, boys and girls in short pants control all. Um, so, I mean, obviously, there's a lot in this report uh so let me start here. There's not much in this report that is new. Not many of these concerns are really novel and genuine. No, and anybody who followed the sort of Reform Act broad energy base in the last parliament would find any of this unfamiliar. Yes. And so I, I think me and Laurent have taken away different uh, things that we want to talk to or talk about having read or skimmed the report as the case may be. Um, <laughs> Good subtweet, Jen. <laughs> guess, guess who is hip? Um, so, I mean, the one I always like is 
the boys and girls in short pants control all. So I'll, I'll just read the... Our the power full, is quite limited. The, the full paragraph here. <laughs> Experienced parliamentarians described the growing power and influence of staffers in the leader's offices. Many MPs were concerned about unelected staffers making policy decisions, and some even complained that elected representatives were treated as quote-unquote puppets. Um, so this isn't a new concern. This concern has existed for quite a while. Um, depending on how, who you talk to, there's always the conversation about an increasing concentration of power in the hands of either the PMO or staffers, depending on which particular narrative um, you're discussing. Yeah. The concentration of power in the PMO, governing from the center, um, none of this is new. A lot of historians would either argue that um, this is happening for a long time or that this is happening across governments around the world. Mm -hmm. Is it uh, technological determinism? Is this the nature of the media environment in which we're operating in? Do message event proposals? Um, there, there's a lot here if you haven't listened to the podcast for the past uh, two years. Um, become increasingly necessary. The main thing that came to mind for me when I was reading uh, the Samara section about political staff was essentially about how understudied political staff are yeah. in Canada, that there is virtually no um, academic research. I mean, there's a few areas of uh, Canadian politics where there's virtually no academic research. If anyone can find an academic article on Canadian lobbying, like I or a book or anything that doesn't date before 1980s and the insiders. Yeah, there hasn't been or, much since we've had a lobbying or act. after. Yeah, there's essentially no idea. It's very similar with political staff. There are a few academics at Carleton University, um, Paul Wilson among them. I believe Paul Wilson and... Uh, Paul Wilson, who, who with whom our interview with... Shit, that, that, that construction is awkward, but you can <laughs> listen to our interview with him in one of our very early episodes... Um, uh, entitled Ancient History. Is, is one of the few. There are a couple other academics. Um, he's, he's not strictly the only one. Um, but I think it's Jonathan Kraft wrote a book called Backrooms and Beyond also that is yeah. worth, worth checking out. That may be worth an episode at some point. But my point is really that in the public policy conversation, um, political staff don't really factor into it as much as in other places, which is why I just want to contrast with the UK. So I'm, I'm not going to get into here whether or not political staff have too much power. That's that's a very broad and far-ranging conversation, um, one which maybe one day we'll do a full podcast on. Can I give my one take about that, my one-sentence take about that concept? Please. They have exactly as much power as their bosses want to give them. That, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I just want to talk about the UK model for a second because... Um, our governments have a lot of similarities being based on roughly the same parliamentary system. Um, but the political staffing role in the UK is much, much more limited than in Canada. And it's actually very interesting to compare um, Australia, Canada, and the UK. I don't, I don't know what the hell New Zealand's doing. Um, in terms of how they compose their minister's offices and whether or not those offices are public servants, or political staff. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, they have positions called SPADs, special advisors. And there's about one to two a minister. Um, the average age is around 33 years old. It's gotten younger over the years. I think, you know, a decade or two ago, it was as high as 38. 
Um, the British media occasionally reports on them and decries them as sort of these hard partisan influence and spin doctors yeah. and a, a lot of those. In fairness, that is pretty much what New Labour's outfit looked like, so fair enough. But it's interesting that I, I just find it fascinating because I cannot imagine a Canadian model as it currently exists where a minister's office are whittled down to one or two people. Yeah, I mean, they have departments, right? Like you have you have an issues branch, a comms branch, a policy branch, an operations branch. Yeah. Like it, you're talking like easily 20 people. F- 15 to 20 is yeah. about what I peg minister's office at. But yeah, yeah. bigger ones, smaller so ones. Stakeholders, yes. policy, comms, all of that is given a partisan political or partisan or political um, be you can be the judge but a lens to it where my interpretation of the British system is that SPADs operate, you know, they're one person a lot of it is more communications focused yeah. than uh, policy focused, not not to say there aren't uh, examples uh, contradicting that but I, I think predominantly they tend to put that partisan communications lens on it. There's actually quite a bit written on uh, how to reform ministerial offices in the UK yeah. with a focus on often, these are written by think tanks, the report I actually have in front of me is by the Institute for Government, and they talk about trying to create a minister's office um, in the UK that you know bl- lends itself more to the talents of the public service, but it's like a quasi-public service version of the minister's office we have today. Yeah. And they talk about, you know, it's gradients, all the different well, and, and, variants that a minister's office can take. Yeah, and, and that's actually, like, that is pretty close to what they have. Is is I think, actually, Michael Barber of Deliverology fame has sort of described, like, what happens with this. Because you are basically forcing people to take on roles that are, you know, supporting the minister and a minister who is going to be up for re-election and in the face of, you know, their their government's uh, efforts on some file or another. And I think what he says is that it sort of either results in people who are not that interested in doing that or in a sort of like promiscuously partisan public service that sort of for adopts sure. the partisanship of the day, which, I mean, it, frankly, given the choice of two models of you have a, a public service that sort of picks up the partisanship of whatever... Uh, parties in power or a professional public service that kind of like knows its place in terms of politics and a reasonably large core of explicitly partisan political staffers i'd rather keep the integrity of the public service intact in that situation i think that's a much better option frankly than what the brits have and the australians who i think also have a sort of mixed system like this yeah the the australian system is much more akin to ours um than it is to the uk um but the, not not to go too far into this, I can post the report I have before. Um, just wanted to raise it as a conversation that should be happening in Canada and is not happening. Yeah, that's fair. Um, what what were your what was your takeaway from the Samara so, report? Samara, I you know they, they have their their slant on things, and I think a big one is that they want Parliament to to be better at being you know multipartisan deliberative body where you know people come together and reach common ground and amendments are made to various things and i actually i don't think that we need that frankly all the time like i think there, there's a time and a place for sort of this cross-partisan kind of stuff and you know we've had very productive things come out of that in the past such so as medicare i think everyone likes that that's good but uh, by and large by yeah. and large right like the the jobs of mps are pretty clear right it's to scrutinize the spend scrutinize and authorize the spending of government 
and the government is the cabinet. There's the prime minister. And, and you know, the government backbenchers are MPs who decide to support the government because it aligns with their values and the opposition is there to do its job and scrutinize etc i think if you if you look at the two suggestions they, they have a sort of comparison chart of the things that people of different parties thought worked really well and didn't work well and both the opposition parties um believed that parliament was not empowered enough to do its job of scrutinizing legislation um, which I think is fair. I think those there's not a lot of apparatus that supports precisely that role. Uh, you look at Bill C C eighty six, right, with its you know eight hundred odd pages. If you give me the choice, I would much rather have the resources to be able to go through that with a fine toothed comb than say you know have a nicer exchange actually on the floor of the house. I personally just don't think that that matters that much i don't really care about politicians being nice to each other they get elected on different partisan banners that reflect different ideas of where the country should go i think having a certain amount of friction between them is, is natural and even desirable i think if you have a very frictionless political class then you have people who agree with each other on everything and then you're not really giving voters a real choice so i i think friction is good i think partisanship is is fine i think obviously there are excesses I, I wish the hooting and hollering and question period were sometimes a little little milder. But overall, I think like the structure of oppositional government or sort of adversarial legislative structure where you have a government and an opposition and everyone kind of knows what their job is in that context is, is good. I think fundamentally it gives people clear choices um, and that's that's good. I think people know what they're getting with parties, which, you know, can sometimes be bad and sense of uniformity but so let me let me give you you're voting on a vision let me give you the rudimentary challenge that that arises with this perspective sure. um in the age of trumpism i uh, i'm entirely putting putting the hat on here which hat uh, the the mega hat the no. little, the, the little <laughs> no. sailor hat <laughs> no the devil's advocate uh to pay and robe that lawyers wear you mean in, a wig in canada you mean a wig <laughs> yes <laughs> so I suppose it's not a too bad. Um, that would be the Trump judge. Have has your take on this changed in light of the political polarization that we're seeing across the world? That is to say, opposite um, adversarial government. You know, a decade or two decades ago, was not seen as feeding into a toxic political discourse in perhaps the way it is now. Has has the changes broadly that we've seen in society changed the um, changed the utility or the desirability of this adversarial form of government that we enshrined? Honestly, no. I think if anything, it's made clear the need to be very clear about what you stand for and to be uncompromising and standing for what you think are values that should not be compromised. I think, for instance, you have the People's Party or whatever, and even the Conservatives on their bad days. Um, you know, and there's sort of loose talk about, you know, either whether it be immigrants, whether it be indigenous people, uh, trans people, uh, you know, you had the guy in Alberta the other day comparing, you know, the pride flag to the swastika. I think at some point you just need to say that I'm not okay with this. I don't see a compromise that is possible here. And if that's polarizing, then so be it. But I'm here to represent the people who sent me here and it's not them. Right. Like, I think you got to have, frankly, like, look. 
I very candidly have a pretty Marxist analysis of what politics looks like. And I think like you have a class conflict inherent in our economic structure and political structure that like, if I'm there to work for workers, I'm not there to work for bosses. And that's fine. And people can vote for the bosses party if they want. But that's not why I'm here. That That's my point of view. Like, I have no problem with polarization. I think conflict is, is generally good. I think it's clarifying. I think politics is about who gets what and it's about winners and losers. I don't think everybody can get a participation prize in politics. Um, so if that triggers some snowflakes, then so be it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a good rant. Um, let me let me provide one argument that I'm not sure bolsters your entire argument, or in, in the case of Canada, multi-partisanship. Um, in the United States, it's very obvious when the Democrats and the Republicans work together on a bill that, you know, no one is challenging that bill. It almost presumes that bill or that piece of legislation to be to be perfect. You're not hearing any dissenting voices in the legislative process if everyone is voting yes, yeah. uh, that they're going along to getting along. Well, okay, no, go ahead. And go so ahead. one of the, what I think is good examples of this in the Canadian system recently uh, is C-66, which was the Expungement of Historically Unjust Convictions Act, uh, which was a bill to expunge the... Uh, criminal, criminal. I use this in uh, scare quotes. Criminal records of uh, service men and women who were. Uh, well, it wasn't just when you say service men. You mean because I think it was all public servants. Was right? it? Yeah, I believe. Was so. it more broad? Okay. Yeah. Um, who were found uh, charged under sort of the homosexuality scares of the the lavender scare. The, the Lavender Scare of the 60s? Is that when might, it was? Might have been a bit earlier, but sort yeah, of let's, let's say a Cold War. So, I, I think everyone, I mean, well, well not, <laughs> yeah, not everyone, but I think most people can get 100% behind the premise of this bill. Yeah. There was an op-ed, though, and I cannot for the life of me find it. I think it was in the Globe and Mail, Globe and Mail. Um, but it was an individual who was expressing that in this case, the multipartisanship and the desire to move this quickly through the legislative process was in effect diminishing the ability for voices to be heard at the committee stage, I I think is where um, his or her point was. And it's that if everyone agrees and pushes it through, you're not actually having a conversation about the policy. And not to say whether this policy is good or bad, but with any policy, there are fidgety details. Yeah. what is compensation? How are we going to recognize it? What are the years that this is going to cover? What are the criteria for applying? Like literally yeah. any of these well, things. Was that stuff covered in committee hearings at all? Funny you ask, because this is where I was going. So I, I'm, I'm up on, par, on uh, Legis Info. And An invaluable resource. You look at the it, Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security that covered this bill, and you'll note that... There was one meeting. Okay. Only one meeting. Okay. And I don't think there were any witnesses um, called. If if there were, it was departmental. Okay. Um, so the point. And I see the the vote for um, committee reporting was the next day. Was the next day. And then the report stage. <laughs> and then third reading was literally also the next day. Was the next day. So you had it passed so through the within forty eight hours of the committee stage. From first reading on November twenty eighth. To third reading on December 13th. Yeah, that's pretty fast. 
Um, that's incredibly fast. It's, I mean, it's not the fastest possible. Um, let's see. Witnesses. So they did have some witnesses, but yeah, you're right. They were mostly departmental. They were all departmental. entirely departmental. Yeah. Um, but this is actually an interesting example where the Senate. Well, and the parole board. Which is not departmental. departmental. Yeah. Is it public safety? It's under part. Oh, I safety. didn't know that. Okay. Well, today I learned. Um, in the Senate, I, I've looked at this before, their meetings, they had many more, and they actually called witnesses from civil society. Three meetings. Um, three meetings, so not much, much more. But it is some. But it is some. So, I mean, here the Senate did better than the House of Commons, but it's my example for bipartisanship, uh, essentially, or multipartisanship, preventing voices from being heard on this sort of thing. I mean, I don't even really think this is a multi-partisanship issue so much as a kind of, like, broad social consensus that this was a mistake made by the government. Actually, I think this is actually... I would say this is an example of the Canadian Constitution working really as it should in the sense that the like the, the elected democratic branch of government said in a very united, clear voice, this is what we think should be done, and then you actually had the Senate doing a little bit of sober second thought and, and tinkering around the edges and, and looking at these things. I think, and frankly, I'm not a big Senate booster, but that to me seems like that worked reasonably well, all told. I, I still think that in the House of Commons, on nearly every single piece of legislation, there should be, and there always, in no matter what case, even if you agree with the principle of the bill... There are fiddly details yeah. that can be discussed. Sure. There are voices that can be heard on this. And when you usher pieces of legislation through without that, that you're doing a disservice to legislative. And that's where it's foundational that our system is adversarial and opposition. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean you have to disagree with the premise of the bill. Sure. But it does mean that you can bring ideas about how the bill can genuinely be improved. Yeah, I think that's fair. And if um, for the sake of... I mean, in this case, maybe moving along quickly, but frankly, a, a meeting here or there would not have really hurt no. the process. Um, it, it's an example where the goal of having an overridingly multipartisan consensus yeah. doesn't really work. Limited yeah. the deliberativeness of our legislative process. I, I would also say, I mean, people look at the U.S. I think for a lot of their examples of bipartisanship, and I wasn't it better when it's bipartisan. And like more bills passed. I think that's that's undeniable. They were they were more easily able to pass bills. However, it was also like incredibly corrupt, for one. Um, and on top of that, uh, like. It, the, the recipe for a for gridlock is very easy when that system breaks down, which is based on a sort of very loosely aligned parties that were not particularly ideological. And, like, being ideological is not bad. It's just it is what it is. I think, like, giving voters a clear sense of, like, what they're getting if they vote for you and who you're there for is, is a good thing. And if your system is so vulnerable to that, if, if basically there is a, a choice being offered to the electorate, that if they're voting for one of two parties that ha both have clear sort of like things that they're espousing and those are basically split more or less 50 50 like yeah that's not going to work and the u.s should probably consider some serious structural reform uh but that's obviously neither here nor there for us but yes i, I think I, there's a defense of partisanship to be made that is not often made i think in in the canadian sort of social and especially journalistic space I think it's viewed as kind of an unalloyed bad for the most part when I think 
realistically, it plays a very important role. And I think offering Canadians very clear choices about what they would get with you in charge in our system where that is essentially winner take all is really important. If we have proportional representation, even then, uh, and I'm sure there have been some NDPers listening who would be like, this would all be different if we had proportional representation. And it's like partisanship still exists in systems with proportional representation. What, what um, about the NDPers listening who are like, the Liberals and the NDP should join forces there in are, Ontario? No, but, but with PR, though, I think people say it, it blurs the lines of accountability with what, you know, because you sort of send people, you, you vote on a platform, right, that parties put forward. Those parties then take those platforms, go into a closed room, and negotiate what the Germans charmingly call a treaty, uh, and then form a coalition government, parceling out uh, ministerial posts as agreed. And then the government governs, and then people are put into the awkward position sometimes of having to say at the same time, the government did a great job, but also we would have done it much better had we had more seats. But, you know, I think it's messy, but it more or less works. It, It leads to sort of I don't think there's been a clear breakdown of accountability. I think the exception to that is when you actually get grand coalitions, where you have sort of the, like if you look at Germany right now, again, the two biggest parties in the Bundestag forming a coalition is there it really dilutes, especially for the junior partner, um, because then it's like, what do you stand for if like the party you basically exist to oppose is sort of just like, you're, yeah, like then you have a big problem. And I think something similar happened to the Liberal Democrats in the UK. But I think a, a competently led party um, can like do quite well out of this uh, and and particip- both participate constructively in government and be able to offer a clear alternative. But it's just it's it's a different kind of work. So that's my take. Fair. I guess we will. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. We're at 40 minutes or 48 minutes. Let's uh, leave it there for today. We will leave it there for today in that case. Uh, our beer today was... I actually don't know. It's very good, though. It's Collective Arts. Collective Arts. I feel like we review, like, 50% Collective Arts, 40% Dominion, and 10% other. other. Yeah, that's probably true, but you know what? They make good beers. So this was their uh, Goes with Guava? Goes with Guava. Very, very good. I got to hand it to them. It is. It's a, uh, a summery beer, but it is yeah. delicious. Collective Arts... I would have guessed Often, Mango. They're, they're Hamilton-based, um, but they are perhaps the largest craft beer exporter. I, I don't, I'm not saying that in terms of volume. I'm saying that strictly in terms of I've gone to, uh, I mean, it's funny, exporter refers to my finds in Alberta. <laughs> um, but Alberta, BC, Nova Scotia, Quebec, I, uh, Vermont, I saw a bunch this Quebec, like they're in every other province despite the antiquated liquor laws. And they're also in the United States and do exports throughout the U.S. Yeah, so no, they, they make a very, very good beer. They're often one of the easiest to find internationally or uh, interprovincially. Yeah. Where did you is, find the Ghost of Guava? Uh, this one? Uh, I don't know. My, LCBO part, my partner picked it up. Oh, it, okay. it would be likely from the LCBO. Okay, they're more premium stuff. Uh, doesn't trickle down to the grocery stores. Sadly. You can get the very, very good uh, mash up the jam sour at the grocery store. Jam up the mash, actually. It was, oh, right. Shoot. I thought was, I flipped it. It was renamed. Yeah. Okay, you're right. Uh, yes, but that's one of their sort of standard lineup as yeah, opposed it's, to it's very good, their, their seasonal beers. Our grocery store can, can barely keep it in stock. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, so that will do it for us for today. You can rate doing so is much appreciated. Uh, as well as follow us on Twitter at shortpantspod. Um, and that, that's really it, right? We have no more announcements or housekeeping to do? Uh, one one additional very serious question. How excited are you for Detective Pikachu? 
uh, True Detective Pikachu. That's, True Detective that, Pikachu. That's all I have to say to that. Oh, I would watch that. Anyway, that will do it for us once again. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.